Well, grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 12, if you will. Um, yesterday, I spent about four hours knocking on doors, uh, working on getting signatures for the petition for my name to be on the ballot. I'm running for re-election this year. So I've been doing that. I did that yesterday. I did it a few weeks ago. And, and uh, it's always interesting when you're doing something like that, when you're knocking on doors. Number one, you don't know who's coming to the door, and you don't know what's to expect there. Are they going to be friendly or not friendly? Are they going to slam the door in your face and, or, or never come? And uh, there's some people, it's interesting, the day in which we live, uh, you can literally hear them inside, but they're not going to come to the door, right? They're just not going to come. That's fine. It's fine. I'll just go on to the next house. But I, I had interesting experiences the last two times that I've been out. You get in conversations with people. You're standing there on their porch, maybe sitting down, got invited into their house, some of, some of the folks. And they begin to talk about what's going on in the county and different issues. But here's what seemed to always come up in a lot of the conversations that I was having with people. It wasn't about the office that I'm running for re-election for or what's going on with the public schools. They were talking about what God is doing at Red Lane Baptist Church. That was the coolest thing. I'm out there. I'm not even trying to represent the church. I'm not trying to be pastor so-and-so. I'm there as doctor whatever, running for school board and all those things. And yet they wanted to talk about Red Lane Baptist and what they're hearing about what's going on here. And this is how they knew. So-and-so that lives around the corner goes to your church, and they've been telling me about Red Lane Baptist. They've been telling me about what the Lord's doing in your church. It was just really neat to, to hear those affirming words coming from people in our community about what they have heard, what they believe is taking place here at this church. And so it was nice to know that we have a strong name, a good name in our community, that our identity is, is something that people seem to affirm, right? We hear a lot about identity in the day and age in which we live, we hear people talk about how they identify. It's a, this concept is very familiar to us. And so as we think about that term identity, if we were to define it, one simple way to define it is, is this. It is the fact of being who or what a person is. In other words, identity is the idea of what distinguishes the individual, what sets them apart, what they're known for or known by. Many times the things or the things that best identify a person are right there in front of you. They're on full display. For instance, if you were to drive, and you will hopefully drive away from this campus later today, I don't think anybody's going to walk, but as you're driving down the road, you come up to a stoplight and you're looking at the car in front of you, many times you're going to see on display that person's distinguishing mark. So the runner that's sitting at the stoplight in front of you is going to have Perhaps one or two stickers, a 13.1 sticker or a 26.2 sticker, right? You know what that means, right? Half marathon, full marathon. That's what the runners are going to have displayed. The moms are perhaps going to have a, a, a decal that is displaying the members of their family. So you got husband or dad, mom, and then all the little children, and they're arrayed in some sort of like bears or I've seen white-tailed deer, you know, just different ways of distinguishing who's in the family. Uh, rednecks, and I is one of those, they're going to have in their back window the brand of boat that they have or the bow that they shoot during bow season. And so that's going to be front and center on their back glass. Uh, the people who've experienced a tragic loss in their life, you, you've seen these. They're going to have that epitaph of their loved one that they're grieving still from their loss. And so that's going to be there on full display. That, that, that's the, one of the things that identifies them. Christians are going to have a cross. Maybe they're going to have a church sticker, a local church sticker. Uh, thankfully, as we look at these decals, we can make sense of them, right? We, we understand 13.1. That's a person who's aspiring to run a marathon that you just haven't got there yet, right? We understand that. What I have a hard time deciphering and, and fully grasping are the specialty plates, the vanity plates. You know, you pull up to the stoplight and you're, you see this license plate that's in front of you and you're like, I have no idea what those, those letters mean. I, I just have no concept. It means something to the person who paid the $50 extra for that license plate, but for the rest of us, we have no idea. My wife has a vanity plate. She's very, very vain. Very vain. She's a vain person. 
Her says JT's wife without, uh, without the uh, vowels in it. And hers is easy to figure out. Uh, here's one that I see all the time. I think it's because I happened to catch this, this, I think, mom at the pickup line and the drop-off line at school. And her plate says mom bod, B-O-D. I can understand that one, right? Mom bod. I, I fully get it. What I don't know is, is she embracing it or is she fighting against it? That's what I don't know. And it really doesn't matter. She's owning it. That's how she is identifying herself as she drives up and down Highway 60. And so as we see these decals, we see these plates, we understand that one of the things that identifies these individuals is right there, out in front, for all to see. They're going public, in other words. And as we think about going public, 24 years ago, President Bill Clinton, at the time the president, declared June to be Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. So for the last 24 years, those who identify this way, those who support those of this community, have used this symbol, the symbol of the rainbow flag, to identify themselves in their community throughout the month of June. Now, obviously, I could take a lot of time here. I could speak biblically to this, uh, this issue and, 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 and drive a certain point home, but that's not my point this morning. My point in raising this is, is that here's an identity people have grabbed hold of. They use the month, they use a rainbow flag to unashamedly go public with this as their identity. Here's a question I want you to wrestle with this morning. On this Sunday morning, first Sunday in June, I want, to, I want you to think about what it is that best identifies you. What is it that best identifies you? I, I said, I is a redneck earlier. And, and so there are some things you could probably look at my life and say, that absolutely identifies him, right? And you just... I met a person the other day, and he's like, you know, I've seen your picture on the website, and you don't look that way. I said, yeah, I know. I've shaved my head since then, all right? I'm still, in the past, I'm trying to hold on to the way I used to look like, but, you know, hair no longer identifies who I am. What is it that identifies you? If someone were to describe who you are, what is it that they would say? If this individual, this person were to glean from the words that fill your conversations, what conclusions would they come up with? What would they glean from the items that you spend your money on? What would they uh, come to understand about you by looking at your calendar and what's on the calendar for your life? What is it that they would understand when they look at the priorities that you have in your life and how things are structured there? So what is it that best identifies you? As we have seen in our journey through Luke's gospel, Jesus consistently calls his disciples to align their lives to his life and his mission, right? Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's a call to align one's life with his life and his mission. Here in chapter 12, as we saw last Sunday, the disciples we're in danger of compromising their faith. They're in danger of, uh, of shifting their priorities based upon, number one, the growing crowds and the popularity and, and trying to hold on to that, or the increasing uh, persecution or the increasing stress that's coming from the religious leaders. And so as more and more people were coming out and seeing and hearing from Jesus, the disciples were faced with this temptation either to gain popularity by pleasing the crowds or to avoid trouble by pleasing the religious leaders. Whichever ditch they fell into, whichever direction they walked toward, they would be displaying something much different than who they really were, or supposedly who they were. And so they would have been displaying a hypocritical faith and fellowship of Jesus Christ. And so it's for this reason that Jesus called the disciples to possess what we talked about last Sunday, a healthy fear, a fear that is based in God and having a fear of God over and above the fear of men. He called them to prioritize him by going public with their faith. This ranking is exactly what we see in our passage this morning. And so if you've got your Bible, if you will look there with me in Luke chapter 12. And let's begin in reading in verse 12. Jesus says these words. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. 
But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Lord Jesus here makes it very clear how important it is that he is prioritized over and above anything else in your life. He issues two warnings to urge this priority, this reprioritization of their lives. First, he warned about confessing one's faith before men. So the one who does so will be acknowledged by him before the angels of heaven. That's what he says. He, the flip side of that is, if you do not acknowledge me before men, then I will not confess you, acknowledge you before the angels of heaven. The second warning was about blasphemy there in verse 10. What is blasphemy? It's probably not a word you use all the time. You may use it sparingly. You may use it on occasion. But it's not a word that we usually use in our vernacular. Blasphemy is this. It's the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously against God or against sacred things. Recently, if you've paid attention maybe to certain news channels, you have seen blasphemy coming from a group known as the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. This group is a group of men who dress in drag and they perform lewd acts in front of Christian symbols in an attempt to satirize their moral agenda. Many news acres, I was interested in this a few days ago, listening to how people were describing what they were doing because they'd been invited to perform or do something at an L.A. Dodgers baseball game or before the game. I'm not sure which one. And so as I've watched some of the news acres try to talk about this situation and what was going on there, they danced around, from my perspective, how to describe it. In my opinion, the only way to describe what this group has been doing or does do is blaspheme God. They, they do these lewd acts, not just of themselves, they do them in front of and to make a mockery of the things of God and the church of God. And so that's blasphemous. That is blasphemy on full display. In verse 10 here, Jesus makes it clear that blaspheming him is a forgivable sin, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he says, is unforgivable. unforgivable. Now, why does Jesus make this distinction? Thankfully, from Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, even uh, earlier passages in Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus' words here are connected to Jesus' miracles that he was accused of doing in the name and in the power of Beelzebub. We dealt with it just a few weeks ago. And so what we see here in Jesus' statement about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it's connected to what had happened previously when the people looked at his miracles, looked at his activity, and says he's done that in the name and in the power of Beelzebub, in the power of Satan himself. So Jesus is saying there's no forgiveness for this. Now, he makes the statement, which seems to be almost contradictory, that you can blaspheme the Son, but you can't blaspheme the Spirit. Now, is that to say that blaspheming Jesus is no big deal, that it's not sin? Not at all. He's just saying that it's not unforgivable. It's not the unpardonable sin. But it's still sin. What does sin do? It condemns us before God. It separates us from God. So... It is sin. It is a big deal. But when we think about those of us in this room who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, many, if not most, maybe even all of us were at one time a blasphemer, right? You spoke against Christ. You denied Jesus. You, you perhaps even made fun of Jesus. You were a blasphemer of God, and yet you have been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been brought in. Paul would say you've been brought near to the Lord in Jesus Christ. And so your sin, which was once great, has been forgiven in Jesus Christ and his act upon the cross. And so it was a forgivable sin, but the sin against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemous sin, Sin against the Spirit is unforgivable. 
Why is that the case? Well, it's blasphemy. Think about this. Not so much as a matter of blasphemous words as it is a conscious, as it is a persistent, and as it is a wicked rejection of the Spirit's witness. So it's not a one-time blasphemous statement against the Spirit or against Jesus. It is a, it is a persistent uh, decision to reject the Spirit's movement in your life. That is what's unforgivable. Unforgivable. Jesus here offers these warnings to those who profess to follow me, speaking to his disciples, as we mentioned last Sunday. They were meant to be a sobering shock to their hearts. Uh, these men who were tempted to tone down their confession uh, out of fear of losing popularity or fear of the impending trouble that was awaiting them. So rather than living out one's faith in the closet, what Jesus is doing here is he's calling his believers, calling his followers to be out front, to be public in their witness, to be public in their confession. We discover in these verses this morning that the Spirit of God leads, the Spirit of God empowers believers to go public in their faith. And our, I want you to see two things that we need to do. I always want to bring the Word of God uh, to application. How do we take it? How do we apply it? How do we flesh it out? Let it live in our lives. And so there's two things that I want you to see, two things that we need to do. Here's the first thing. We need to follow the Spirit's leadership in our public profession of faith. And so this morning, if you read this passage and you're listening to me, this is what you need to do. Follow the Spirit's leadership in your public profession of faith. Look with me again in verse 8. Jesus says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges, acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, there's a clear call for a person who hears and believes the gospel for salvation to make his or her decision public for Christ, right? This call was on full display when Jesus called the 12 disciples. I want you to think about this. Go back, if you've been with this for a while here, go back to the early parts of the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus is beginning to call men to follow him, and he comes to the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees James and John, two brothers who were fishermen, and their buddies were Andrew and Simon, also two, two brothers who were fishermen, two fishing families, and he goes to them, he says, come and follow me, Right? Track on just a little bit further in the Gospel of Luke, and Jesus comes to a tax collector named Levi. We also know him as Matthew. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus looks at this tax collector, has a has conversation with him, and calls him to follow him. What do you see in these five men's lives? All of them publicly put down their nets, walk out of the tax booth, publicly changed their lives to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a public display of faith, of followership, when it came to following Jesus as Lord and Savior. New Testament precedent, precedent for this public profession of faith is seen in the act of baptism. So we see them laying down their old life and walking with Jesus. But if we looked at the overarching picture of what does it mean to publicly profess your faith, it is seen in the ordinance of baptism. As a person identifies publicly with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, in the early church, in fact, not just the early church, but in most parts of the world today, baptism is not conducted the way we conduct baptism. I'm not necessarily advocating that we change our whole concept of baptism, meaning we don't have a baptistry right here that these four walls enclose and do something different. I'm not necessarily advocating that. I'm just saying we are losing out by the fact that we only do baptisms in the house amongst believers. Because in most of the world, and definitely in the times of the New Testament, when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ and they said, I want to take baptism, I want to publicly profess faith, publicly identify with Jesus in the ordinance of baptism, they didn't do it in a, in a room like this with just a bunch of Christians watching. No, they did it in the town square. They did it down at the local pond. They did it in the river where everyone was getting their water or washing their clothes. It was a public display of faith, of new identity in their life. So when we're in South Asia, 
like we will be in this fall. And we're working with our missionary partners there. And we share the gospel in someone's home with a family. And we lead them to faith in Christ. And they, even maybe at that moment or perhaps later on down the line where there's been some discipleship there. And they have come to the place where they say, I am unashamedly uh, going to follow Jesus. And I want to be baptized. We do it over there in a public place. We did it last fall. We go down to the river. We go down to the local water hole. It's a pond or it's a small lake or something like that. And we baptize there for everybody to see. What are they saying in that moment? They're saying this. I'm no longer Hindu. I'm Christian. So everyone that's in that neighborhood, everyone that's in that village, all their family members, which in that culture is, is very uh, cohesive when it comes to the, the community, Right, Family and people that are living in that village, they're very intertwined. What they're saying is, I am loosening my ties. I am, de- I, I am detaching myself from my Hindu life or my Sikh life or Muslim life. And now I am hitching all of those ties to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Lord Jesus Christ's people. That's what baptism is. It's this public display of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Jesus' words in in this passage call us to follow the Spirit's leading, to be public in our profession of faith. I want to share with you three things that's involved in this. Here's the first thing, sharing your decision. If you're going to follow the uh, the Spirit's leadership in your public profession of faith in Christ, you need to share your decision, right? You need to share that Decision. You need to tell someone about it. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, we don't have time to go there and read that, but hopefully you remember the story. If you don't, you can look at it later on. But in Acts chapter 2, we read uh, the account of what we call Pentecost. That's the, the, the day, it's the moment when the Holy Spirit came, uh, 50 days after the crucifixion, 10 days after the ascension of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come and uh, rushed on the the apostles. They began to preach the gospel in languages that the people understood or the people knew. So they're hearing the gospel. They want to respond to that gospel. And they come to Peter. And the Bible tells us that they were cut to the heart. In other words, there was conviction in their life. They understood what Peter was preaching. They understood their sinfulness. They understood that Jesus is Messiah. He is Savior and Lord. They wanted to know, how do we respond to this? What do we do? Peter says this. Repent of sin and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he tells them to do. Now, we're not given specific information other than that. In other words, we don't know all of the things that played out in that scenario, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think of the fact that they probably said something like this in response to Peter. I I do believe in Jesus. I do believe he is the Messiah. I do believe that his sacrifice on the cross, the blood that he was shed there, brings forgiveness to my life. I do believe that I want to give my life to him. I want to surrender to him. I believe there was some discussion along those lines that they were talking about their decision to follow Jesus Christ. So we're reading between the lines a little bit, but I believe they were sharing their decision to follow Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And so for us today, if we're going to follow the Spirit's leadership in our public profession of faith, how do we do that? We share our decision. So have you shared your decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you ever told someone else that I am a follower of Jesus? I have confessed my sin. I have trusted him as Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, why not do that today? There's a second thing involved, and that is the act of baptism. Again, going back to Acts chapter 2, those who responded to Peter's preaching of the gospel, what happened to them? They were baptized. The Bible tells us that they were baptized. 3,000 were added to the church. So again, in doing so, By being baptized, they were publicly identifying with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. So here we have, not Hindus like we would see in South Asia, here we have Jewish people who upon baptism are saying, I no longer identify as just a Jew. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm identifying with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Uh, In baptism, I'm declaring I've died 
it with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, like Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2. I now live the life of Christ that's being lived out through me. So in baptism, we, we talk about it this way. We describe it this way. The person is being lowered into the water. It's a picture of them dying in Christ. As they're raised up out of the water, it's a picture of their resurrection life in Christ. Now to walk in newness of life. So that's what they're saying here. They're saying, I'm no longer just a Jew who's following the Torah and looking for the Messiah. I am now a Christian who has found the Messiah. And better yet, the Messiah has found me. That's what they're doing here. So they're publicly identifying through the act, through the ordinance of baptism. Now, when we think about baptism, here's what we want to make sure that we understand. Baptism is not a mode of salvation. It's not a process by which you are saved. It is a picture of the fact that you've already been saved. Does that make sense? So in other words, when, and I had a conversation with one of our young people, young men here, young boys just before the service. Uh, young guys, uh, more than likely has come to faith in Jesus Christ, wants to talk about that further, wants to move toward baptism. And he came out and he said, Pastor James, when can my family, my parents, and you get together and, and, and we can talk about it? He's ready to get baptized, right? Which is a cool thing. But when we have this conversation, what I want to make sure that he knows and all of you know is that the act of baptism is not the saving act. It's simply a picture of the fact that you've already been saved, right? Now, many times in the New Testament, what you see is you don't see that sharing the decision. You don't see people walk in the aisle. That public profession is personified in the baptism, but you're not saved by baptism. Why? What's the big difference there? Well, if you're saved by baptism, then we could just baptize all of you and you're saved, right? By that definition, it becomes a work. It becomes, I'm jumping through a religious hoop. It becomes, I'm jumping through a religious motion, and that forces God's hand to save me. So you actually can never be changed or don't have to be changed at all. You've just went through a religious ceremony. It's one of the reasons we as Baptists do not baptize or christen children. We don't believe in infant baptism. Because it needs to be a conscious, volitional decision for each and every one of us to follow Jesus Christ. So baptism is not a mode of salvation. You're not being saved by being baptized. It is simply a word picture of your salvation. Here's a better way to say it. It's a water sermon, right? It's a water sermon. You're preaching the gospel. You're declaring your faith in Jesus as you're being baptized. You're in essence saying, I'm with Jesus and I am proud of it. So this morning, have you been baptized? Have you publicly professed faith in Jesus Christ through baptism, following the Lord's, through his spirit's direction in your life? If you know Jesus Christ today, and you've never been baptized. I want to tell you, you need to be baptized, not to be saved, not to go to heaven, but to be obedient to the picture and the um, command of scripture. Have you been baptized? If not, why not make that decision today? There's a third thing involved in our following of the Spirit's leadership in our public profession of faith, and that is gospel conversations. The Apostle Paul continues his explanation, and I meant to mention 2 Corinthians 5.17 earlier when he talks about how uh, when we come to know Christ, the old has passed away and the new has come. There's this grand exchange that takes place in our life. That's what Paul lays out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 specifically. He goes on to say in verses 20 and 21 that we are, as Christians now, ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. In other words, we're the preachers, right? You're the preacher where you live. You're the preacher where you work. You're the preacher where you play. So Paul says this, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Then he lays the gospel out. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see here, acknowledging Jesus before others involves us telling others the gospel. Having conversations and pointing people to Jesus, telling them how he's changed our lives and how he wants to and how he can change theirs. So as we follow the Spirit's leadership in our lives, to be public in our profession of faith, it will lead us to share that decision. It will lead us to baptism. It will lead us to have gospel conversations, sharing the gospel with others so that they too can experience the life that we as believers have come 
to experience. True, I want you to think about these two things before we move on to the second main point. True faith always will lead, move from your heart to your lips, right? If you are in Christ and you're walking with Christ, that life that you have within you will never just stay there. You can't help but have it on your lips. You can't help but have it in the way you live your life. You, you want to share it and be used of God to share it with others. False faith, on the other hand, false faith possesses no desire to confess Christ before others. So if you say you've believed on Jesus, but you're unwilling to share your decision with others, if you're unwilling to be baptized, if you're unwilling uh, to, uh, to tell others uh, that you've been saved and how they can be saved, you have no desire to be evangelistic in your life, then can you really call yourself a Christian? This morning, let's go public with our faith. Let's follow the Spirit's leadership in that endeavor. There's a second thing that we need to do here. Follow the Spirit's leadership. Secondly, trust the Spirit's empowerment in your public defense of the faith. So Jesus has called his believers, his disciples, to um, understand the necessity of going public, the necessity of following the Spirit's leadership in sharing the gospel. Now he's going to help them understand that the Spirit is there with them as they defend the faith, right? He, he's warned against blasphemy. He's talked about that. Now he's going to help them, encourage them to embrace the great positive fact that the Holy Spirit is the believer's helper. Remember what Jesus said when he ascended to the Father? Go and make disciples, right? He says, all of that, teach them whatsoever I've commanded you. And what does he say at the end? Lo, I am with you always to the very end. Jesus is with us. How is he with us today? The Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is all about. The person of the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, comes to take up residence within our lives as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the Spirit's empowerment in our public defense. So look there at verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. Now, here's something interesting. I've, it's rare, but I have had believers, um, I don't want to question anybody's salvation, I guess, but people in the church, not the church, and churches in the past, so you guys are all safe. I'm not talking about you, right? Not talking about you at all. But, you know, they'll come up, and it's not just been to me. I've heard other pastors ex ex uh, express the same experience as well. But they'll come up and say, uh, Pastor, um, I think the Spirit would be leading you more if you didn't use notes. Like, I preach from a full manuscript. So what I'm preaching from, you can look at every Sunday morning and follow along on our website. I upload it. You can follow it. It's there for you. I give it to you because I want you to know the Word of God, right? I, I, I'm, I'm not hiding anything. From I want you to know the Word. I'm trying to teach you how to study the Bible. So I preach from a full manuscript. Now I add to it. I take away from it when I'm delivering. But the gist of what I want to say every Sunday morning that's come through prayer, it's come through study, it's right there on this manuscript for you to have. And so some would say, that's not spirit-led. Spirit-led is extemporaneous. It's the on the fly. The, you know, they probably would allude to the fact that the prophets didn't carry a manuscript, I guess, when they were speaking in the Old Testament. They just spoke, thus saith the Lord. Well, number one, I'm not Moses. I'm not Elijah. I'm not any of those guys. I'm a different guy in a different era. And I don't have to be that because I've got a full canon of Scripture that God, through his Holy Spirit, the verses I read earlier to these young folks, has been God-breathed for us. Theo, Neustos, God has breathed it for our own benefit and edification. So that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying that spirit-led preaching is, is extemporaneous. I would say it's rarely the case, but we're not even talking about preaching here. Jesus is speaking to some men who are his followers, who he's going to pass the torch on to, and he understands they're in this limbo era of their life. Do I give in to the crowd to remain popular, or do I give in to the persecutors to keep myself out of trouble? And Jesus says that when trouble comes, notice what he says. That's a good point. 
and when they bring you before the synagogues. He doesn't say if they bring or if you get yourself in trouble. He says when they bring you before the synagogues and the authorities, don't freak out. The Holy Spirit will be your empowerment. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the defense to make. And it's not about you. Now, does Jesus promise that they're going to get out uh, slick and clean and nothing bad is ever going to happen? That's not what he says at all. He gives really no definition there. But if we look at Jesus' own life and we look at the life of the apostles in the early church, many of them were martyrs for the faith. That's not Jesus' point. His point is, when you're in that predicament, when things are getting hairy and trouble is on the horizon, don't worry. Trust the Holy Spirit's empowerment because you're going to preach boldly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what's most important. It's not about your life and how long you live. It's about the life of Christ being pressed out through you, even in the midst of tribulation. That's what Jesus' point is. So we trust his empowerment in the situation. Last Sunday, I'm doing good on time this morning. You guys are listening well today. <laughs> Last Sunday, I, uh, I think toward the end, shared a little bit about Peter and John. They're in Acts chapter 3 and 4. You know, they're headed to the temple uh, to pray. They're still Jewish men. Uh, they're believers and followers of Jesus Christ, but they have not yet fully walked away from the, the, the ceremonial aspects that first century believer didn't walk away from everything from that standpoint, so they're still going to the temple, and as they do, they pass a man who's begging alms. That's the way he made his living, because he's crippled. And they said, we don't have any money. Silver or gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And he was healed in that moment. Crowd begins to gather. Uh, people are just kind of oohing and on over the situation. The religious leaders are nervous about it. They pull them in. And in chapter four, we read that they warn them, they threaten them to never speak in the name of Jesus again. I want you to hear what Peter says in response to them in Acts chapter four, beginning in verse eight. It says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, remember he's He's relying, trusting in the Spirit's empowerment, filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, rulers of the people and elders. If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Can you sense the boldness in his words? If this is a man who's cowering and wondering how he's going to get out of this predicament, do you think he's going to say, whom you crucified? No, no, no. He's going to weasel himself out of that precarious situation. But instead, he boldly leans into the Spirit's empowerment. We go on. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the, 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 the religious leaders of our nation. But he's become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. I love this verse. Now when they, that's the Men present there, when they saw the boldness of Peter and of John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. These are just fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. They don't have PhDs. They don't have a lot of letters after their name. They're just common men. But notice what this uncommon thing about them stood out. It says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That made all the difference. That made all the difference in their life. So Peter here responds boldly. Peter here responds respectfully, but boldly before this religious leading council. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the text tells us. Now this feeling of the Holy Spirit, F-I-L-L, -L, just make sure you understand my arcanese, this feeling of the Holy Spirit is different than the feeling of the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost. In other words, when the Spirit came, Peter and John and the apostles and everyone there was filled with the Spirit of God. The presence of God came to live and to reside within the heart of the believer. 
And that same presence is with Peter and John as they're standing before the council. The feeling here that Luke is describing is not a, a second rushing of the Spirit of God into their lives. It's more in the idea of they are coming under the obedience or under the authority and, and the uh, followership of the Spirit of God in their lives. And so it's an emptying of self-reliance and it's the feeling of God-reliance. They're emptied of themselves and the Spirit of God, the power of God is poured into their lives. Today, many of us, we know nothing of standing on trial for our faith. Uh, we'll most likely never know what it's like to be in John and Peter's predicament in this chapter where someone literally says, with the authority of the government, never speak in the name of Jesus again. We'll probably never experience that. Could. I don't know how we're going in this country. Things are escalating at such a high rate. Perhaps it might happen in our lifetime. But most likely not. So how does this apply to us? How does this apply to our lives? Because we're not facing the guillotine for confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how it might play out. How pressure, how pressure do you feel at the workplace when it comes to your biblical convictions? When your company is saying, if to work here, you've got to align with these priorities, or you've got to say things a certain way, where's the line drawn for you? When do you feel the pressure to take the Christian faith that you have and, and the biblical convictions that you have and kind of just tuck them away. I had a conversation yesterday with a gentleman sat on his porch for like 30 minutes and he was telling me about his son who I assume is older than me and the struggles he has in an, as in some sort of an executive role at some sort of company and the agendas that are there and the things that they push down. And we just had this good conversation of how difficult it is as a follower of Jesus Christ who believes the Bible and wants to live the Bible out, how hard it is to live that out in the workplace, live that out in the school setting. So what are we to do in those situations? I, we're to trust the Holy Spirit's empowerment to live the gospel faithfully before people. That's what we're to do. If it costs us our job, it costs you your job, right? We have to be faithful. We have to be strong. We have to be convictional. Peter and John here did not back down in Acts chapter 4. No, what did they say? They said, whether it is right in the eyes of God to obey him, you be the judge. We can't help but do this. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. That was their conviction. How did they get that conviction? Filled with the Holy Spirit. They're trusting the empowerment of God in their life. Now, I'm not telling you to go... To, Tomorrow, on Monday morning, go to your supervisor and say, my pastor said, I don't have to do this dumb stuff, and I'm not doing it anymore, and if you don't care, I'm out of here. I'm not telling you to do, to do that at all. If you actually act like that, you're kind of foolish. Be shrewd, be smart, but be convictional. Live the gospel where you live, where you work, and where you play. Right? Go public. Man, closet Christianity, that's for the bygone era. I grew up in an age, I'm 45 now, uh, I can remember the, the back end of what we would call as the church growth movement, and, and we had, you know, you, many towns across the south at least, you could put something on and people just flock and, and come out, that ship has sailed. To be Christian in America today is to be a part of the fringe of society. To really be convictional, really be gospel-centered, it's to be the fringe of society. So we're no longer, we, we should have never been to begin with, but we can no longer be just nominal in our Christian faith. No, we got to be dead set, all in, because that's, in reality, the only way to live the Christian life to begin with. Go public. Go public. And who or what... Is your identity found today? I think a good way of trying to figure that out is to look at what you talk about. To look at the things you spend your money on. To look at what occupies the dates on your calendar and how you prioritize the things in your life. I, I think if you look at those, you can get a pretty good understanding, a pretty good assessment of what it is that identifies you. Does Jesus fit into that 
figure at all. Is Jesus personified in that equation at all in your life? When you look at your calendar, how much of it is occupied with gospel things? We're a pretty faithful church, and I look out here and I see folks are here most Sundays. You're not all here every Sunday. I'm not even here every Sunday, right? I won't be here next Sunday. I'll be in New Orleans for the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but for the most part, we have a church, bless God, that is, that is um, faithful in attending worship and small group and, and, and just getting together. But man, if that's not a priority in your life, not based on my authority, but based on the authority of, of the Word of God, it ought to be a priority of your life. Otherwise, Jesus is not a priority. He says, if you love me, right? What does he say to, to Peter? Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. There's this call to be with the sheep. It's to be with the people of God. And so if we love God, we're going to love his people. So what does your calendar say? What about your money? What's your priorities in your life when it comes to your finances? What are those going toward? Oh, pastor, this is where you're going to meddle and whether or not I should tithe. You should tithe. I just believe that's baseline giving in the Christian faith. We can debate that all along. But what does your money go to? Not just in the church, but does it go to help others? Does it go to help the needy? Does it go to help other folks and families in the community? Or is it just about you building your kingdom and building yourself? Your time, your treasure, your talents. How are you using those to serve the Lord and to benefit and be a blessing to the people around you? If our identity is in Jesus Christ, we will follow the Lord's leadership through his spirit as we publicly profess him, as we trust him in every aspect of our life. And we could even go further and just say every part of who we are will be marked by the Lord and his gospel. This morning, I hope that question of what is marking me, what identifies me is wrestling in your heart and in your mind. And I hope the Lord has kind of giving you some insight there. And so what is it that identifies you? Some of you this morning, the decision the Lord would be leading you to make is this. There's never been a time in my life where I have openly and willingly surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing sin, and allow him to become the Lord and Savior of my life. You know, for me, that happened as an 18-year-old freshman in college in April of 1997, right? Long time ago. Today, that might be the decision you need to make today. Some of you, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You've never been baptized. So for you, you need to say, I need to follow the Spirit's leading to publicly profess Jesus as my Lord and Savior by being baptized. Maybe I just need to be more faithful as sharing the gospel and sharing my testimony with others. I don't know what it is, but are you following the Spirit's leadership, going public with your faith? Maybe you just need to lean into the Lord at the workplace, in the school, and wherever else that you, maybe in your neighborhood, amongst your family. Family sometimes are the hardest people to reach. We fear that they know us the best. They know all of our, our, our faults and our flaws. They see all of the warts in our life. And so we have the hardest time being very evangelistic in our family. But what do we need to do there? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord to work through that, right? You sharing the gospel is not about how articulate you is. It's about the Spirit of God using you. I'm a bumbling fool at times. Don't amen that. <laughs> I figured one of you would. You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to be slick. You don't have to be so polished in the what you say and have the answers to every single question. You just have to be one who is faithful and just says, yes, Lord, I'll be used. That's all you got to do. Are you going to trust the Lord's power in your life? Every Sunday morning, we have a time of response. What's this time of response for? Exactly what I've been talking about. What is God calling you to do? This is the time to respond to that. We do it. We say, come publicly. And I think you should come publicly. I think you should come. There's just something about putting feet in front of you and walking down and saying, I sense the Lord leading me to do this or to, or, or to surrender this. By you doing that, there's something about that action, that movement that brings accountability, brings greater emphasis there. I know personally there's been many times that you just sit there and you're like, all right, Lord, uh, I trust, I, I believe I need to make this decision, but you never took it publicly. And so whatever decision you were saying yes to never actually came to fruition. Why? Because you didn't involve other people in it. 
So I would call you to come forward. If you need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, come forward. If you need to pray, come forward. If you need to be baptized, come forward. We'll get that set up. We'll talk through that. What is it the Lord is laying upon your heart to do this morning? Let's pray. Father, this morning we are just so grateful for the gospel. So grateful for its power in our life. So grateful for the change it makes in our life. Lord, we're thankful for what we see in Scripture, even here in this passage of Luke chapter 12. And the promise that you give us, the call, the first that you give us, the promise that goes along with it, that we as a follower of Jesus Christ should not and cannot keep that to ourselves. Lord, we know this morning that your spirit still speaks, your your spirit still draws, it still moves us to respond. So that today, in this response time, I pray for those men, those women, Lord, teenagers, even children sitting in this room, maybe watching us online, that the Spirit of God is is speaking and leading and, and drawing people to faith in Jesus Christ, to turn from their sin and to be saved. God, may that happen. May that happen this morning. Lord, I pray for those who do need to be baptized, who do need to be more bold in their witness, who, who do, do need to, to no longer walk in fear but distrust you, and even in the difficult situation at work or school or whatever, maybe in the family. Lord, rather than cowering in fear, we just stand in the boldness of the power of the Spirit of God. And it's almost like we're Elijah standing on Mar- Mount Carmel calling fire down from heaven. Lord, it's all about you. Help us this morning to be faithful and to be responsive. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.